0: Awesome to have you guys this morning. My name's Tony. Uh, I have the privilege of serving here at Wellspring as pastor. Now, if you are a kid and you would like to hang with other kids, Miss Jeannie is over there. She would love to hang out with you, so feel free to join her. And little Claire is the one swinging the, the little clipboard over there with the cool hat. Uh, feel free to hang with them. Now, if you're stuck with me, uh, we are at a transition season here at Wellspring, so two years ago we did a church plant, we just started trying to get things off the ground, we went through the book of Acts for a bit, and then we spent the last 18 months going through the Gospel of John. So we have been going through the Gospel of John for a while, uh, and we finished it last week. Yeah, sad for some, grateful, happy moment for others. That was just amazing journey. And hopefully uh, in the winter, we're either going to dive into 1 Corinthians and go through that for a while, or do kind of a a little bit of a longer survey through the Old Testament so we have a better grounding of the Bible that Jesus shaped his life on. So we're going to decide, we're still sort of prayerfully considering what's next. For now, though, this fall, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, So one of the things about John, John is all about, right, these I am statements. Who is Jesus And do we trust him, right? At the end of John, he's like, I've written this whole thing so you believe. Now, do you, you know? That's like John's whole thing. Who is Jesus? Do we trust him? Now, as you know, or some of you know, when I was in college, I didn't start college a follower of Jesus. I had this profound encounter with God. Uh, It was the end of my freshman year. We were at Lake Arrowhead, just outside of LA at this like retreat setting. Had this profound encounter with God. Worshipped for the first time. Then we went from Lake Arrowhead, drove back into LA. I was at the Claremont Colleges, and I thought, I had this profound encounter with God. I knew Jesus. I wanted to trust him. Yes. And then I got back into college and realized that was way harder than I thought. Because for 20 years of my life, I had done life a certain way. And I was stuck in these very entrenched ways of doing life. Right? So I thought, "Oh, I love Jesus now. I'm going to read the Bible all the time, not so much." Right, Because I got back into school and I had a lot of responsibilities. I really loved studying. So I studied and I had work and I had sports. The Bible stuff kind of took a back seat. Right, I thought, oh, I love Jesus. Now I'm going to love people. Guess what? It didn't happen. I was used to, especially the people I didn't like, what I would do is I would dismiss and ignore them. That's what I did. And I didn't just start loving my enemies just because I had this profound encounter with God. When I got back into life, I treated people the same way I had before. And what I've realized over the last 20 years of trying to practice the way of Jesus and follow Jesus is that it is easier said than done to really follow Jesus' example in everyday life. That's true for a lot of reasons. One, There's a lot that Jesus said and did that we're supposed to sort of follow and model our lives upon. It's not like, all I have to do is sit and read the Bible and everything will be okay. Right? So then, over the last 20 years, one of the things I've realized is it's not only complex, not only do I have entrenched broken patterns that I need to sort of like figure out how to get out of those little stuck spots, but also life changes. I remember practicing and following Jesus was one thing when I was single and then I got married. And then I had kids and everything was out the window and I was like, I have no idea how to do this anymore. I'm not sleeping, right? Like I, this is hard when you don't sleep, right? Right? And then maybe you're an empty nester and the kids have left and now you're like trying to refigure out marriage. What does it look like now to follow Jesus? And maybe, actually, maybe you're widowed. Maybe you get divorced. Maybe in that whole arc of your life, you're at another season, another transition. Maybe you're having health problems and you're like, you know, I thought I had this figured out before, but now life has changed. I think sometimes we think that following Jesus is like this picture, sort of like a, a road just going, that's just straight. You know, and it's kind of like, hey, even if I get a little tired and I fall asleep at the wheel, it's so straight that I'm going to wake up like a few minutes later and I'm still driving down that same road. I've never done that personally. Maybe you have. My experience is following Jesus is not like that, though. It's a little more like this. Right, there's ups and there's Downs. There's times when you don't really know where you're going and you're just sort of trusting the trail in front of you. There's people uh, when they hike, so a lot of my analogies are going to be shaped by last week. I hiked 100 miles through the John Muir Wilderness. So a lot of this is sort of fresh in my mind. But there's people that along the Pacific Crest Trail, what they do is 2,650 miles basically from Mexico to Canada. What they'll do is they'll hike for a bit and then they have these resupply points and they'll leave the trail, they'll go into town and they'll figure out, okay, what do I need? Are my shoes broken down? Right? Do I need more food, more water? You know, do I need a new shirt? Whatever. And what I'm imagining this series and this fall is about is us, right? On this spiritual journey, trying to follow Jesus, taking a moment to sort of leave the journey for one second to figure out, do we have everything we need? to take a resupply moment, where we're not checking in about our shoes and our food, but what are we doing with our life? What habits and practices and rhythms do we have in our place that shape us as followers of Jesus so that we can make it through the next section of our journey, wherever you are this morning? That is my hope, that is my prayer for this season is that we're going to lean into what are the habits, practices, rhythms that Jesus' followers throughout time have employed so that they can look more like Jesus in everyday life. So that they are more in love with Jesus tomorrow than they are today. So they exemplify as witnesses who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. That's my hope for this series. It's like a resupply point on this long journey of faith. Now, to do that this morning, I'm going to sort of do two more sections. One is going to be to lean into Jesus' model of first century discipleship. And then we're going to do at the latter part, sort of like, okay, so what are the nuts and bolts of how we're going to work this out over the next 8 to 12 weeks (coughs) this fall? So part one is a contrast between Jesus and the way he did discipleship and the way his first century cohort did. To do that, I want to start with the Jewish educational system. Now for you, this might be an odd place to start, but it's actually radically important. So if you're, a, if you're five and you're living in first century Israel, uh, you would, and you're in, let's say you're in Galilee or Nazareth or wherever, you would go to a rabbinic school. It's kind of like a public education, but all it's geared on is memorizing and knowing the Hebrew Bible. So you'd show up. And what you would do on the first day of school, they'd say, ah, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible is sweeter than honey and they'd pour honey on your Bible and they'd have you taste it. Oh, it's sweet. But then what would happen is if you weren't quite smart enough, you couldn't quite memorize enough, you know, after a few years, they'd say, okay, now you two go to the trades, right? So if you weren't smart enough, you weren't good enough, do the trades, right? So now you're a carpenter, you're Whatever, you're building houses, you're sowing, you're in the field, you're a farmer. And this happened at multiple occasions during the educational process. So that when they got to high school, teenagers, they're graduating, this is like the best of the best, the smartest of the students. Make it to the end. Right? This is like the cream of the crop. And now what do you do? Now they're like PhD candidates, essentially, in our system. Like that's how smart and educated they are. And then they go and say, you know what? I'm pretty good at this. I think I'm going to go find a rabbi. So what you do then is you go and you ask a couple rabbis. You ask Harvard rabbi and Yale rabbi, whatever, you know. And you say, can I follow you? And most of the time they're going to say, no. (laughs) And you'll go try and find another one or you'll give up and pick up a trade. Now, if a rabbi is willing, based on your credentials and your performance, to take you in, right, this isn't, this is where it really differs from our educational system. At this point, right, this is not a mind transfer. It's not like, now you memorize the Torah, awesome, like, no, no, no. Now, you do everything that rabbi does. I mean, this is sort of silly for us, but like, they would literally follow them into the restroom, and they would do their restroom procedure the same way their rabbi did, the same way they ate, the same way they took breaks in the day, the same way they studied the Bible, their interpretation of the Torah, that is what that person would learn. There's no preference here. It's like you do what your rabbi does, okay? The best of the best. Make it to the end. They then ask a rabbi, hey, can I follow you? Most of the time, not so much. Now, I want to enter into Matthew 11 at this point, And I want you to feel the feel of the contrast. Okay, you're in this world that is saturated in performance and your ability to memorize the text. You are going to ask rabbis, and then Jesus comes into the world, into your little arena, and he says this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you feel the difference there? One, Jesus is the only rabbi in the first century who actually asked disciples to follow him. Did you know that? Every other rabbi waited for the best of the best to come knocking on their door and then they would sort of, okay, you can, you can be one of mine. Or shut the door on their face. Jesus goes to them and says, come and follow me. Come to me. Second, really, really important. Jesus doesn't say, hey, hand me your credentials. He says, come to me. Hey, are you weary and burdened? Are you burdened by the fact that you were kicked out of the schooling because you weren't smart enough? Are you burdened by your everyday life? You're struggling by the weight that the rabbi you're under currently is burdening with you? You're burdening you with? Come to me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, hand me your credentials. He looks at you and me and says, come to me. And he just waits. Do you want to follow me? That's what Jesus says. Jesus was super intense with the Pharisees of his day. Matthew 23, he says this, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. There are 613 like mini commands that the Pharisees implement in the first century. Jesus says this, Come to me. In one world, you have all these rules and obligations you need to juggle. In the other, it begins with, will you trust me? Will you come to me? Will you come to the person of Jesus and submit your life and yourself at his feet? Whether you were tired or burned out, whether you were worn out or doing well. Eugene Peterson translates translates it this way. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Right? For Jesus' disciples, it all be all begins with moving to him. He doesn't promise them a burden, he promises them rest. There was this one moment or a few moments uh, on this hike that we did. So we were in the Sierras, right? It's this long walk. And um, we went over a number of mountain passes, and I, I felt like each time we went over these passes, I had the same experience. You'd walk up, and eventually you'd get almost to this like mountain cul cul-de-sac. you never been on a cul-de-sac, right? You walk to the end, you're like, I guess that's the end of the journey. I guess I turned wrong, you know, I'm going to turn back. But in this case, you can get to the mountain, and you're like, I have no idea. I, I didn't bring ropes. I'm not trained for scaling this mountain. How am I going to get up? And each time we'd get to this place and the trail would eventually like in this really odd, unexpected way serpentine up through these crags and we'd make it over this mountain. And as I was praying this morning and reflecting on this Jesus' call to the weary and the burdened, I just had this sense that there are some of us who spiritually on our journey have gotten to that place where we just feel like there is a mountain before us. And we're sitting at the bottom and I think some of us are weeping Some of us are thinking about turning around because we don't know where to move. We feel so stuck that what has brought us to that place cannot get us over. And I feel like Jesus' invitation to us this morning is he reaches out a hand to you at the base of that pass, and he's like, hey, take my hand. Come with me. I'll help you make it over. come to me all who are weary and burdened. And then he says this, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All right, so yokes. The only thing I'm familiar with yoke-wise is either like you're in a you know, some weightlifting thing and you're yoked or you eat a lot of eggs. Like, there's basically two yoke options in my linguistic repertoire. So I had to do a little research, like, so what is Jesus getting at here? So in the first century, there's a couple options. Usually in rabbinic circles, this refers to the teaching of the rabbi or particularly the interpretation of that particular rabbi. So you take that yoke, you take their teaching. But this springs out of two particular historical contextual uses or applications in the first century. The first is an animal yoke. Now you might be familiar with this, right? So this is like a, this is used for oxen. So a farmer wants to till his field. What does he do? He has a a yoke that he puts on oxen. One of the oxen generally is older. So you have an older trained oxen and then you have a younger one next to him. And what you do is they both get harnessed together, but the older one pearls the, does the majority of the work and kind of trains the younger one both to adjust to the workload and how to be in a harness and do the work that's necessary, okay? That's example one of a yoke in the first century. If you're familiar with this text, that's probably what you've been exposed to. I want to do a quick little doodle just to show you another way to look at oxen and yoke. All right, so this is sort of the the one we just talked about, right? So you have the ox's head kind of comes in here, right? And then there's like a chain that connects back here to the, the, I don't know, carriage, whatever the farming tool is, the tractor tool. Another way to look at uh, a yoke is sort of like this. Um, So now I want you to imagine this is called a human yoke. So imagine this goes on your neck, right? So it sort of goes back here, does that make sense? And there's usually some sort of rope or chain that goes down both sides, and then it connects to some sort of weight. So let's say you have two weights on each side. So this is sort of the idea. If you're, trying, if you're a human trying to carry a lot of food or two huge buckets, your fingers fatigue faster than your shoulders and your legs will. So the idea is you put on a human yoke, you sort of put it up like that. Can you see that? Did I draw big enough? Um, and uh, you wear it, and that allows you to walk without having to have your fingers fatigued so you can actually carry more weight over a longer period of time. Okay. So Jesus says, take my yoke, put it on you, right? So this could apply to the oxen. That's possible it comes out of, sort of generates from there. The cool thing about the ox yoke is you have this relational discipleship feel, right? So one ox learning from the other. You have this idea of burden bearing, right? So one is sort of helping the other one adjust. The cool thing, the thing I like about the human yoke is one... The ox yoke feels a little restrictive to me. I'm thinking like, I don't know if I want to wear an ox yoke, you know? And it doesn't feel all that voluntary. It's like, ox, you're wearing this. You know, no one asked the ox. Um, The human yoke is nice because it, one, it sort of communicates a voluntary experience. Two, it communicates the ability to do what you couldn't do previously. Right? So now when you go back into the contextual awareness, what does Jesus say? Come to me. Put the yoke upon you. What is the yoke? And now, what, how does this function? It is something as Jesus is teaching, right? So you're asked to do something. Both of these involve doing something. This is not simply come to me and hang out and drink a pina colada. This is come, be with me, right? Now do something. And in the process of doing something, what happens? You change. Your capacity to do has now increased or changed. You are transformed. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you. But one of the things that's really important at this point is you can really easily imagine, sort of, and maybe you've been in environments where you felt like this is true, where whoever's yoke you're wearing could really push you hard. And it could be a really unpleasant experience. Right? So you could imagine someone driving an ox and having no care for the ox, just till the field. Get it done, or you could imagine someone saying, "Hey, I need all this stuff moved. Just move it. I don't care if you're tired. Just do it." Right? Can you imagine that? I have a very sort of visceral connection to this because I, you know, was just hiking 100 miles with a backpack, a yoke-ish, a modern yoke, and I was very concerned about how comfortable it was and how much it weighed, right? Because has a huge impact on your quality of life as you're actually doing the experience. As you're bearing the yoke. Verse 30, Jesus says this, My yoke is easy, a.k.a. comfortable. And what? It is light. It's the ideal yoke. Two, he says this in verse 29, right? That he is humble and gentle. So not only does Jesus call us to himself, And to bear this yoke. But we know that the person who is asking us to do these things is gentle. He's kind. Right? Jesus actually lays into the Pharisees of his day. He says this. Everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at banquets. The most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces to be called rabbi. You know? By others. But Jesus isn't like this. Jesus is not using us for his own ego gratification. He is actually interested in us learning and growing and being transformed over time. Eugene Peterson in The Message translates it this way. He says, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If you notice, right, we actually titled the sermon series Unforced Rhythms of Grace. We did this very intentionally. I think as soon as you start talking about actions, you start talking about doing things, it's very easy to enter into this earning performance sort of narrative, where it's like, oh man, oh man, Are we really going to get practical? Like, I kind of like staying at the idea level because then no one can say whether I did it or not. Right? Like, I think that's part of the thing. Like, we don't actually want to get into the nitty-gritty because in the nitty-gritty, it starts calling out all these sort of unpleasant, potentially unpleasant experiences we've had where we felt like we were measured at every turn like, oh, yeah, you're not doing it. Instead, we want to learn what are the unforced rhythms of grace. Unforced, you might wonder, like, what is that? My experience is whenever I force things, it doesn't tend to go well. We'll get into this in a minute. But I think actually 90% of our discipleship is not about forcing. It's not about us sort of trying harder. It's about us actually letting go. Almost all of our discipleship, I think, is about letting go of what we are attached to. It's about letting go of control and allowing Jesus to put his yoke on us and actually submitting ourselves and our lives to him and his leadership and his direction. Unforced, because it's not about us mustering up the strength and the courage and the know-how to rock it. It's about us letting go to Jesus and letting him guide us letting him shape us, letting him give us the habits and rhythms we need for this leg of the journey. So often we think that we just need to be better. We need to be the best of the best in order to follow Jesus. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. And what? I will give you rest. That rest flows from letting go into the arms of Jesus. And guess what happens? That's when we actually experience grace. Too often we think, you know, so effort-wise, does this require effort? Yes, it does. But the effort is not in sort of trying harder. The effort is all about we are stuck and addicted to different patterns in our life. The effort is, are we willing to let go and trust that Jesus has a better way? Is that going to require effort? Yes, it will. Because we've worshiped at all kinds of idols. We have gotten so stuck in different ways of addiction that actually we need to let go and let Jesus set us free that we might experience true rest. Dallas Willard has this awesome quote. I'm going to read it for you. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. What he's saying is this. You are going to be, or what we're saying is this. You are going to be required to make an effort if you want to grow in following Jesus. Absolutely, you will. But the effort is going to be in letting go. And the grace is not simply the forgiveness of sin absolutely it is. But if you look at the New Testament, one of the central elements of grace is transforming grace. It is God's grace as we let go into His arms, follow His invitation, embrace His rhythms. He transforms us from the inside out by the power of His transforming grace. Unforced rhythms of grace. We do not want to cultivate heroes at Wellspring. We want to cultivate people that are willing to let go, set aside their agendas, and be shaped by the rhythms and practices of Jesus. Not because we're awesome, but because God's grace transforms us as we let go into his arms. Two sort of just contrasts I want to tease out before we get into the uber practical side of how this is going to sort of take shape over the next few months. The first is a contrast between rest and training. So when I imagine rest, one of the first things I think of is drinking ice-cold coconut water on a tropical beach. Now, maybe your image of rest is a little different. That is certainly mine. It's like, ah, rest. But that's actually not a biblical picture of rest. Rest in the New Testament happens when we align our heart and life with the kingdom of God. So rest in Greek, right, used here by Jesus twice in this little section, echoes back to a word in Hebrew called shalom, which is the wholeness of God, the peace of God. We experience the rest of God when our heart and life align with the kingdom of God and we enter into his peace and rest. Now, to do this, though, requires a little bit of training. Donald Hagner says this the fact that Jesus' yoke is kind and his burden is light does not, is light must not be misunderstood to mean that discipleship and righteousness to which Jesus calls are easy and undemanding. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? The way that is easy leads to destruction. And I'll tell you right now, I was uh, at a conference a number of months ago, Mark Laberdon is the president of Fuller. He talks about the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture. Right now, we are at a historical moment where the mesmerizing rhythms of our culture will entrance and distract us crazy quick. And it is easy to just get caught up in all the distractions, all the cool bells and whistles and Netflix and vacations and awesome food and just be like, this is the best thing ever. And we'll have the kingdom and we won't have the king. It is super easy in this moment to get caught up in these mesmerizing rhythms, get distracted from the point we settle for the road of least resistance and we don't find the rest that Jesus promises. Have you ever, I was talking to someone the other day, they were talking with a sociologist who's up in uh, in the Bay Area and they were saying actually that teenage mental health, particularly as it relates to anxiety, Monterey County is the number one uh, the the highest highest levels of teenage anxiety and mental health issues of any county in the United States, or in uh, California. Crazy, right? I think this is like, um, and you see this throughout the United States right now, like as we are settling for these rhythms, these mesmerizing rhythms that our culture offers, we are not actually getting the rest that we long for. Because the rest that we long for flows from the easy and light yoke of Jesus. But that means that we need to sort of willingly embrace Jesus' training plan. But so, when I look at sort of church and the way training tends to work out, I think there's basically four permutations. The first is sort of I just call uh, not so much. And that just means this. Life is busy. Life is overwhelming. Right? Ju- we're all juggling so many things. I don't know anyone regardless of stage of life, that doesn't feel like their life is like a plate overflowing onto the ground. Right? So then we just sort of become like a not-so-much church. Like, yeah, I know Jesus said that, but I just don't have space for it. I don't have time for it. Right? So we end up not actually doing what Jesus is inviting us to do, that, so we don't experience the rest that he offers. Two, I think I'm just calling it, I think it's too much too quickly. But it's this idea. It sort of basically parallels uh, gym memberships. So I have a friend who's a personal trainer, and what he says is this. Gym memberships skyrocket for the the first week of January. People go to the gym for like an hour, hour and a half, two hours. They wake up at 4 a.m., and after two weeks, they are burnt out, they are done, and they don't go to the gym for the rest of the year. I think we do this with Jesus all the time. We are so focused on, oh, I just need to get back in the game. I just need to start. And then we just like throw ourselves in. We're trying to pray for like five hours a day. We're reading all these books. Two weeks later, they're like, I just need a break. Netflix, you know? And we're burnt out. And then 10 months later, we do it again. Look at the last five years of your life and tell me if your life is not sort of mirroring this cycle. It's super common. Or, too much of the same thing. Right? This also happens in gyms. Right? Maybe, this, maybe it'll parallel for you. Your spiritual life and your gym membership will sort of impure. In gyms, right, people go to the gym. What do they do? They hit the same five machines every day for like 10 years. And they wonder, why am I not getting stronger? Because your muscles need variety. Same spiritually. A Jesus training plan is not just do the same thing for five years with zero change or adaptation. Remember the journey that I talked about? It changes. Context changes. Therefore, what we do changes from time to time. I was trying to come up with like a definition of what Jesus training is. This was my best attempt. So this is an engaged process, a relationally engaged process with God of letting go and learning, setting aside our agendas, taking up the yoke of Jesus. Over the long haul, this isn't a sprint. This is Jesus does not care whether you make a huge sacrifice today and then go back to the same way you did it tomorrow. Over the long haul, we are interested in loving Jesus more in 10 years than we do today more in 30 years than we do in 10. I don't care whether you are super faithful today, but next week you're just back to the same old addictions, patterns, and things that got you stuck in the first place. Over the long haul, that dynamically adapts based on God's gracious will and invitation. This is an engaged relational process with God of letting go submitting to the leading and the yoke of Jesus, right? That's adaptive so that we are equipped over that long journey, not the sprint, to love God more in the end. Rest and training. Now, the second nuance I want to sort of tease out this morning is this contrast between habits and heart, And I think this is super important for a few reasons. One, you get into the first century, what you see is this. You have this Hebrew people, right? They're trying to seek God, but you have this massive cultural inflow from Greco-Roman culture. So you have this pushback, and you see it throughout the New Testament, where they're looking for external boundary markers, but they're superficial to say who's in and who's out. Right? So they're like, well, are you keeping the Sabbath? Right? Very good external boundary marker. Are you eating the right foods? Very good external boundary marker. Are you circumcised? A little harder to tell. Um, (laughs) But you have these external boundary markers to say, are you in or are you out? Are you faithful or are you not? Right? Jesus then comes into this setting, and he says this in Matthew 23. Woe to you, teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Outside also will be clean. One of the dangers of starting to focus on practices and habits and rhythms is we can become like the Pharisees where we focus on the outside of the cup, and we neglect our hearts. Are you doing the thing? Hey, did you read your Bible today? Did you do this? Did you do that? Oh, you're good. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You, yeah, do these things. Habits are important. What we do with our life is important. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But it's not at the neglect of our heart. Habits without heart can be worthless. And I think if you've been at church long enough, you've probably seen this, where people are so focused on the external boundary markers and the heart is lost. He's like, you can't do that. I remember there was a season where I was trying to do a Bible reading plan and like go through the Bible. And about six months in, I just started like reading a line and saying thank you and checking a box saying, I did it today. Right, I'd taken this good and beautiful moment That started off with me with a soft heart and a practice that helped me align with Jesus and his kingdom. And I had taken it in time and made it into this external boundary marker of I got a streak of 600 days or whatever. But the point was, what I was tempted to do at that moment is throw out the Bible reading. When in fact, that was actually the greatest moment for me to say, what is wrong with my heart? that this thing, the self-revelation of God, reading the Bible, now has become boring to me. What happened to me internally? Right now, the habit has now spoken and revealed the true state of my heart. And now it's the moment where the habit then becomes a place where I lean into Jesus and say, God, what is wrong with me? Help me. It's not a casting out of the habit, but allowing the habit to unveil what is truly going on in our heart. We don't ditch habits. They become a means of heart understanding and heart awareness. They become a process for dialogue. J.K. Smith has this uh, great quote. He says this it's not going to be projected. The orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of habits of desire. Learning to love God takes practice. Like most of us don't come into this room wholly. Most of us come into this room broken creatures in need of Jesus and his rest. And the habits Jesus gives us, the rhythm he gives us, become ways we then align our heart and life with him and experience the rest he offers. All right, so that's my initial frame for this series. All right, now I'm going to get into nuts and bolts. You're like, oh, I thought that was the end. Uh, sorry. All right, so nuts and bolts. If you've been around Wellspring a while, we've talked about ABLE. So, right, ABLE is our basic discipleship acronym. A is attend. We invite everyone in this body to attend to the voice of God, to indent to the person of Jesus every week. Make some space, be with God. B, we invite everyone in this body to bless someone inside the church and outside the church as a way to build a sense of connection and be a blessing outside church walls. L, learn from the scriptures. Right? Be a people that are learning and growing about what God, how God reveals himself in the text. Uh, keep Go back. Stay at the Bain one. I'll get to these in a minute. Go back. There you go. Eat. Eat is about blessing people or uh, eating with people inside and outside the church as a way of building community and also embodying the welcome of God in the world. Now, what Aaron and I were trying to figure out is how do we take this basic acronym, which is consistent to when since we did the plant two years ago, and how do we build out practices within it so that we can just go deeper with the discipleship rhythms we have versus just like starting new? So what we're, we're going to do over the next uh, 16 weeks-ish is go through four different rhythms or practices within each of the letters of Abel. So we're going to bring up A, uh, and there's four practices there. If you can read them, if you can't read them, I'll read them for you. So, Sabbath. Where next week, we're going to lean into what does a Sabbath in silence look like as a practice for the people of God? What does it look like for us? Right? Healing. Right? There's a ma- huge connection. Often, we all bring our brokenness into the church walls. Part of attending to the presence of God is allowing God to heal us inside. Right? So that we can love people outside and see ourselves in God clearly. Prayer. What does it look like to connect with and be with God? Worship. What does it look like to lay our heart and life before God? Right? So we're going to go through those as practices of Abel over the next uh, 16 weeks. B, all right, enemy love. I don't know about you, but loving my enemies doesn't come naturally to me. This is actually a habit or a practice, learning how to love people that I don't like. Right? Not pretend to like people that I don't like. This is actually love people that I still don't like. Right? generosity, learning to be generous with our money, our time, our being, Uh, justice, right? God's justice and mercy are a huge value in the Scriptures. What does it look like for us to take them seriously? Faithful presence is our way of saying, you know, God invited us to be His witnesses in the world. What does it look like for us to be His faithful presence? L, so what does it look like to study the Scriptures, to be in the Scriptures? And then study is a little distinct, right? So you can read the Bible. Study is, what does it look like to study the Bibles and to study people who've thought a lot about the Bible, a.k.a. theologians? Study, right? Some of, some of us are going to love that. Some of us are going to be like, not so much. All right, your story. One of the things that we're, we're trying to figure out where this fit, uh, but this idea of our stories, the story God has brought you on, how does that shape your participation in the unfolding kingdom of God? Right. How do we lean into what is your story? How does that translate into your participation here and in the world? Your role. Uh, so this is sort of gets into spiritual gifts. What are your gifts? What are the gifts that God has given you? And then E, hospitality, community, communion, celebration, different practices there. So we have all these practices we're going to go through in the fall. So we learn to lean into what are Jesus's habits, rhythms, practices. Now, with this, we didn't want this to just be a Sunday morning thing where you came in and you're like, cool sermon. All right, now I'm going to go about my life. We wanted to create a tool that you guys could take from this place and use uh, with a friend. In all of our well communities, we're going to implement it. Uh, maybe with a, in your marriage. So we created this thing called the ABLE Project. Now, if you go online, what you'll see is this, right? So you go to our website, you click on ministries, you go to ABLE Project, you'll click it. It'll take you here. This is just an introductory video on the ABLE Project, what we're trying to do. Uh, You'll scroll scroll down, and now you'll see all those things that I just talked about. And then what we'll have, if let's say you click on Silence and Sabbath, that's next week. You click on that. It's going to bring you here. And what you're going to have for every one of those rhythms and practices, we have a podcast and a video. Now, we're a church plant. We're not high production. So Aaron and I did one take. (laughs) So have a little grace. Uh, We beta tested it, and we got decent feedback, so hopefully it's helpful. Um, If you're in the car and you want to listen to it, feel free. To me, that is the least important part of this whole process. The most important part is see where it says handout on the bottom? Click handout. And then I know you can't read this, or maybe you can, but there's a few different elements here. And this is, I think, the, the essential part of what we're trying to do. So we're trying to create a space where we are reflecting on our life as it relates to this practice, right? That's heart. What's really going on in me? And then we're asking people to do experiments, right? This is actually practicing. This isn't, hey, I listened to a good sermon, I thought about it, and then I listened to another sermon, and I thought about it, and I listened to another sermon, and I thought about it. This is about experimentation. Like, Jesus' yoke is not an abstract idea. It's actually something that we do. So we have an experiment you can choose from. It can be small, it can be, you know, 10 minutes, it can be all day. There's flexibility there. And then we have a pod discussion, and this is the idea. We're hoping people will reflect a little bit. We're hoping people will experiment a little bit. And then we're hoping you will find someone to journey with you and talk about it. Because it's really hard to do on your own. So every week we will go through one of these. We won't go through in just sort of the order of attend, bless, like we'll chunk it up a little bit. And then the idea is when you leave on a Sunday morning, if you want to lean into this material on a deeper level with someone else, you can. All we are doing is providing the opportunity for you to do that. All right, what's the next slide? Oh, there we go. All right, so what does that mean for this week? This week, I, I have two just invitations for you just to, and, I, and actually these are more just thoughtful heart questions. I would wonder in your current life right now, right? Everyone's busy. Everyone's overwhelmed. Do you have room to reflect or experiment? And I would invite you, talk with Jesus about it. That's it. Right? That's all I, I want you to at this point, before we even start practices, like it begins with our heart. Are we actually willing to even consider and entertain? Like, oh, am I even wanting to do this? And if you say no, why not? Two, question is this. What would it look like to make room for a partner on the journey through this process? Maybe you're a part of a well community already and we're gonna sort of work our way through, but maybe you're not. What would it look like to partner with someone? Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a friend, and just work through some of the content together as a way to have someone you can talk with on the journey and learn from them. They can pray for you, they can be with you as you process. Those are my two sort of invitations. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, And as we enter into worship, I just invite you just to sort of personally wrestle a little bit with where are you in this process? Right, Jesus' following was never meant to be an idea that we sort of absorbed and embraced solely, but a practice and a way of life. Like, what does it look like for you to lean in, to make room for reflection and experimentation, to make room for other friends on the journey to go with you? And next week, we're going to dive right into the practices. For now, I just invite us to consider making room for Jesus in dialogue as we begin this journey together. God, we ask that you would show up, that you would come in power, that you would reveal our hearts to us. God, amidst all the possible distractions, as our minds sort of go all over the place, God, we ask that you would settle our hearts in your presence. God, we ask you to help us be open to learning from you. Help us to be open to your your burden, and your yoke that we might find the rest that we long for.